Having finished the gospel of Jesus according to John, we're now going to turn our attention for the next few weeks to some passages that anticipate and celebrate the coming of Christ. This year we're calling our Christmas series, He Came to Save. Each week we'll consider a different aspect of our, of our, of our Savior's work. Just as if you, you were to hold in your hand a, a giant diamond. Now I've never held in my hand a, a giant diamond, but I would imagine that if I was holding a, a baseball sized diamond, I'd want to turn that diamond slowly to behold its beauty, to see its glory, to savor it as I got to behold it. And that's similar to what we want to do in these next few weeks as we look at the saving intent, the saving accomplishments of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to again behold His glory and His goodness in coming to earth to save sinners like us. This morning we'll be making a stop at four different locations, four Old Testament locations that either predict Jesus' coming or highlight our need for Christ to come. Those four locations are Genesis 3, Jeremiah 23, Exodus 34, and then Job chapter 9. And just to set this up a little bit and just go with me for a moment in this illustration, I know that what I'm about to say might not sound like a good time for you, but just pretend like it is. The joy that we will have this morning will be a little similar to the joy of watching a pre-recorded football game where you already know the outcome and you know that your team wins. And in fact, your team mounts this massive come from behind victory and they win the day and they win big. And so as you watch this pre-recorded football game, as you have your guacamole and your tortilla chips next to you or your Coke or your soda pop next to you, you are not worried. You are not anxious in the slightest bit as the other team makes a touchdown, as they intercept the ball, as your team falls behind, you remain at calm. You're just enjoying the game. Why? How can it be that you're not anxious, that you're not discouraged as you watch this game? Because you know the outcome. You know exactly how this is all going to turn out and that your team is going to win big. That's a little bit like us as we look at Genesis 3, as we look at Jeremiah 23, Exodus 34, Job 9. We know the outcome. We know the one who will come, who will crush the head of Satan. We know the one who will come to make forgiveness reality. We know the one who is the perfect mediator between God and sinners like us. We know the one who is our righteousness, who makes us clean so that we can be forgiven and welcomed into God's presence. This morning, as we make these four stops, we have the distinct benefit of knowing the New Testament. We have the distinct benefit of seeing clearly how Jesus fulfills these precious promises to us. So let's pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll get to work, beginning in Genesis 3. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we ask for your help today. Help us to see and to recognize and to know once again that we would be lost without you. Help us to know clearly your wisdom, your grace in sending Christ to save us. Allow us to again marvel at your goodness, that we would rightly worship you in spirit and in truth, that we would again, as we leave this place, demonstrate then the love of Christ to everyone we meet. We pray this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen. In our first stop, we are reminded in Genesis 3, please note this on your outline, that the coming Savior would crush our enemy. The coming Savior would crush our enemy. The book of Genesis obviously takes us back to the beginning. And beginnings are important. It's been said that if you truly know the beginning of a matter, you will be able to discern its end. Now, whether or not that is always true or not, I'm not so sure. But I do know this. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 explain how God created everything good. God created everything good. The animals are good. The climate is good. The trees and the plants are good. The Wi-Fi is good. Adam and Eve are very good as they have been created in the image of God. And in this perfect environment, Adam and Eve enjoy fellowship and relationship with God. They were made for God. They were made for His glory. They are to find their meaning, their joy, their significance in Him. They are blessed beyond measure, enjoying life in this perfect environment. They are free to enjoy all of God's creation. They are free to eat from every single tree except for one. God told Adam in Genesis 2.16, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And yet, instead of loving and trusting God, Adam and Eve commit cosmic treason. Eve is deceived by the serpent. She listens to the voice of the enemy. She entertains the deceiver who questions God's goodness, who boldly calls God a liar, who insists that God does not have your best interests at heart, but God is holding out on you. Yes, God is withholding from you that which would truly be good to you. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They chose to go their own way. And they became ashamed. They immediately became self-conscious of themselves. They tried to cover themselves with leaves. And they later hid themselves from God when God came looking for them. Look again at verses 8 and 9. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, God knows exactly what has happened and God knows exactly where Adam and Eve are at that present moment. God never asked question for his own benefit to learn something. He always asked question for the benefit of the one who is listening to him. God knows exactly what has happened. And it's very interesting to note that it is God who comes looking for Adam and Eve. He seeks them out in their shame And in their rebellion. Now there's a whole sermon that really should be preached on this one point alone. That our God is a seeking God. That he loves to seek and to save that which was lost. God comes to us. To redeem us. Not the other way round. But the point is here in Genesis chapter 3. Everything should be lost. Everything should be lost. Adam and Eve have sinned. They have committed cosmic treason. They have refused to trust God in His goodness. They refuse to believe His word. They have in fact sided with the enemy. And when they are confronted on their sin, they try to pass the buck. They play the blame game. Adam does not take responsibility for his actions. Adam first blames Eve for his sin because she was the one who had given him the fruit to eat. And then Adam oh so subtly even implies that God is to blame for his sin because after all it was God who gave Eve to Adam to be her wife. So perhaps God this is really ultimately your fault. And then Eve, when she is confronted on her sin, does she take responsibility? No, she then tries to pass the blame off on the serpent. And in response to this whole mess, we could have understood if God would have simply said, you know what, I think we're done here. I I, I think we're done. I, I, I judge you. I condemn you. I sentence you to eternal death, separated from my presence Forever, But God does not do this. Instead, God pronounces and explains, yes, the effects of sin, the consequences of sin, the ramifications of sin, and God has a special message for Satan. God has a special message for the serpent. For the enemy, for the deceiver of men's souls. Look again at verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says, Satan, your days are numbered. 
There is coming one who will bruise, who will crush you, who will crush your head, who will inflict upon you a mortal wound. And this champion will not fail as Adam and Eve had failed. You may tempt him. You may do your worst to him. He will succeed where Adam failed. You, he shall bruise, he shall crush your head while you will only bruise his heel. And again, of course, we know who the champion is. We know who this is pointing to, who this is looking forward to. We know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this glorious promise. Romans chapter 5 talks about both the sin of Adam and the righteousness, the obedience of Jesus Christ. Yes, death comes into the world through Adam's sin, but now life and righteousness and justification come into the world and are made a reality Because of Jesus Christ, who conquers sin and death, who destroys the works of Satan. Romans 5.17 says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Genesis 3 makes us long for Christ in that it helps us to again see our need for Christ. Our need for the one who would overcome the deceitfulness of sin. The one who would and could stand against the lies of the enemy. The one who can walk in perfect love and righteousness, who can and will succeed where we all fail. Yes, Genesis 3 tells us the outcome from the beginning. Jesus wins. And when he comes, he comes to destroy the works of Satan. And there is no uncertainty. There is no ambiguity on this point. Jesus will be victorious. He will be the champion. What did Martin Luther write in a mighty fortress is our God, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Now, I have been told by my wife that it is a most unsettling experience to be chased by a headless chicken. I, I have never had the pleasure, but my wife assures me that a headless chicken can run, although he runs without much thought, and that he can even appear to be chasing people when he runs. But that headless chicken is a doomed animal. He can run, he can move, but his days, his hours are numbered. His fate was sealed the moment his head was severed from his body. Listen, brothers and sisters, I am not calling Satan a headless chicken, but make no mistake about it, his fate is sealed. His doom is sure. He may prowl around like a roaring lion, and to be sure, he does, but he is powerless 
in the presence of Jesus Christ. He is defeated under the atoning, saving, redemptive work of Jesus Christ. At the cross, Jesus delivered the death blow to the enemy. He has conquered the great deceiver. Now, before we leave Genesis chapter 3, look at one last verse with me. Verse 21. Verse 21. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And in response to that, we should say, How kind and gracious of God to care for and clothe these rebels. And we ought to also say, How kind and gracious of God to clothe us. In Christ's righteousness. And we'll talk more about this as we turn now to Jeremiah 23. Please turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. As you'll recall, the prophet Jeremiah wrote during difficult days. Jeremiah wrote these verses at a time when Israel had corrupt leaders. Leaders who did not love the Lord their God, who did not honor the Lord, and who did not rightly care for God's people. And yet here God speaks of a coming day when He will raise up a branch for David, a descendant of David, and He will be righteous. He will be a powerful king. He will rule and reign with wisdom and with perfect judgment and justice. Look with me at Jeremiah 23, just two verses, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Our second stop now reminds us, and please note this on your outline, B, the coming Savior would give us the gift of his perfect righteousness. Now again, of course, we, we read these verses and we, we immediately think, we immediately want to shoot our hand up into the air and say, we know, we know exactly who Jeremiah is writing about. We know the identity of this righteous branch. It is Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, that is correct. Jesus was and is the son of David. He was in the line of David. The Apostle Paul emphasized this in 2 Timothy 2.8 where he writes, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And the angel Gabriel who spoke with Mary, Gabriel would emphasize this truth as well in Luke 1.32. <clears throat> The angel said, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. 
Jeremiah's words about a coming righteous branch in the line of David. They draw our thoughts to Jesus. They direct our attention to Christ. But did you notice the final few verses, that last little wonderful phrase in verse 6? And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Please note it on your outline. We are here reminded that the very righteousness that God requires, He provides in His Son. At Christmas, we should celebrate and remember that Jesus is our righteousness. That we stand loved. That we stand fully accepted before God, having the righteousness of Jesus credited to our account. There is a good chance that this year, many of you are going to receive clothes for Christmas. Now, your spouse or your friends and family have not clued me into this. I've not received uh, anyone's gift list, but I have a good feeling that there's a high probability that many of you are going to receive some article of clothing, maybe maybe socks. Maybe, maybe, maybe you'll get uh, the ugliest sweater that has ever been created. Maybe you'll get a tie that, that lights up, that has some kind of battery source that needs to be connected to it. And that, that is not a bad thing. Clothes can make a wonderful Christmas present. I can remember a time when in junior high, all I wanted for Christmas, the totality of my Christmas list was that I wanted a, a nice, fitted San Francisco Giants baseball hat. Do not judge me. Do not judge me. That's all I wanted for Christmas was a really nice fitted San Francisco uh, Giants hat. That was the totality of my list. Now, mind you, the San Francisco Giants are a baseball team. Well, my cousin who drew my name that year, she did not know any better. She heard I wanted a Giants hat and so she bought me a New York Giants hat. That, that's the wrong team. That's the wrong sport. You know, that, that's, that's, not, that's not in the same world. That's not in the same universe. It was the wrong gift for me. Now listen, my cousin may have accidentally uh, given me the wrong hat. And this Christmas season, you may need to return a gift that doesn't fit or that is not the right gift for you. But you can be sure of one thing. Listen, brothers and sisters, when God gives a gift, it is the right gift. It is the gift that you need. And it is the gift that is a perfect fit every time. How desperately do we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ? How desperately do we need to be clothed in His righteousness? We who are so sinful and rebellious, we are so easily led astray. We are so easily deceived into following just a myriad of idols. Idols of pleasure, success, money, attention. We need a righteousness that is not our own so that we can live joyfully in the presence of God. 
And Jesus Christ provides this very gift. So Paul would write with such joy and gladness in the book of Philippians chapter 3 verses 8 and 9. He would say, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. When Adam and Eve sinned, God clothed them in animal skins, but now in Christ we see the fullness and the beauty of God's plan that we may be eternally forever clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What greater gift can be given? There is no hat. There is no tech gift that can ever even begin to compare with the riches found in Christ Jeremiah 23 calls our attention to the righteous one, to the righteous branch who was born in Bethlehem, the son of David, who gives us as a gift of his grace, the very righteousness that God requires. Friend, God gives this precious gift to anyone and everyone who will but turn to him in faith and believe. And call on the name of the Lord. Have you done this? Do you know that you are loved and accepted because you are in Christ? If not, today can be the day of your salvation. Today can be the day that you humble your heart. That you confess your guilt, your sin, and you receive the life of God. Friend, do not leave here today until you have called on the name of the Lord. Our next stop takes us to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. This chapter presents us with a most perplexing problem, a problem that can only be solved and resolved in Jesus. Now, just to set the context a little bit, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses asks for a most remarkable thing. Moses says to God in Exodus 33 verse 18, please show me your glory. Moses says to God, please show me your glory. Now we may hear that and we may say, is that all you want, Moses? Is there nothing else on your Christmas list this Christmas season? Moses says, show me your glory. What a, what a strange thing for Moses to request of God. I would think that by now, by Exodus 33 and 34, that Moses had seen enough of God's glory. Didn't Moses see God's glory at the burning bush when God spoke to him from this burning bush? Didn't Moses see God's glory in all the plagues that God had sent upon Egypt? Didn't Moses see God's glory when the death angel passed over the houses with the doorposts that had been painted with the blood of the Lamb? Didn't Moses see God's glory when the Red Sea was split and the people walked through on dry land? Wasn't that a display of the, of the glory of God? Didn't Moses see God's glory 
in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led the people by day and by night. What are you talking about, Moses? Show me your glory. Well, notice how God responds to Moses' request. Back up one chapter to Exodus 33. Exodus 33, verse 19. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You see, Moses knew something. Moses knew that however much he knew of God, there was more to know. Moses knew that however much he had seen of God's glory, there was more to see. And so God says that he will, in a veiled and protected way, and this is for Moses' protection, that God will reveal his name. He will reveal his nature. He will manifest his glory to him. Now, jump down to Exodus 34, verse 4, and we'll see how God fulfills this, how God reveals his glory to Moses. Exodus 34, verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai. And the Lord God commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. There's obviously much that could and should be said about these verses. But for our purposes this morning, let me just draw your attention back to verse 7. Verse 7. Did you notice the question, the problem that arise from from this verse? In verse 7, God says that he is a forgiving God. That he, that, that he forgives, quote, iniquity, transgression, and sin, but, but, also God says that he is a God who does not clear the guilty. So, here's the question. How can both those things be true? How can God say that he forgives sinners, 
But he doesn't let the guilty get off the hook. In what way could God ever look at a sinner and say, oh, you are forgiven, and yet it also be true that God does not clear the guilty? Sure seems like he clears the guilty. If he indeed says to a guilty sinner, you are forgiven. How can these things be reconciled? Well, again, as New Testament believers, you're already way ahead of me. You, you know the answer, and it is found in Christ, and it is found at the cross. Please note this on your outline. See, the coming Savior would make true, complete, lasting forgiveness possible. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that God hates sin and that God hates sin more than we do. God hates injustice more than you do. God hates all wrongdoing more than you do. However much you may think you hate sin and injustice, I assure you, God hates it more. And to add on top of that, the fact is, you and I have very faulty memories. As one brother has said, sometimes we mistake a bad memory for a clear conscience. The fact is, we can't even remember all the bad things we have done. We can't even remember all the sins and all the iniquities and all the wrongdoing that that we have done. But God's memory is perfect. God has remembered everything. God has heard every word. God has seen every act. God has known every attitude that has ever come and gone from us. And God hates all sin with a perfect, righteous, white, hot wrath. And since that is true, what hope could there ever be for people like us? What hope could there ever be for sinners like us? How can Moses ever think that it is a reasonable request to say, as he does in verse 9, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance? How can a holy God ever do that? Is Moses delusional? Has Moses lost his mind? No. Moses is confident that his God is a redeeming God. That his God is a saving God. Moses is confident in a a coming Messiah who will make all things right. Yes, Exodus 34, it pushes our gaze forward to Christ where we remember that at the cross, justice was not ignored, justice was accomplished. Sin was atoned for. Forgiveness becomes fact because Jesus took the wrath. He took the punishment that we deserve. God can be both. He can be both just The one who hates sin. The one who punishes sin. And God can be the justifier. The one who forgives sin. The one who shows mercy to sinners like us because of Christ. 
because of his work at the cross. And this is precisely Paul's point in Romans chapter 3, where Paul explains the cross. He explains the patience of God. He explains how Jesus satisfies the wrath of God against sin. All of this, says Paul in verse 26, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, friend, God is just. And He justifies. He forgives every sinner who seeks safety in Christ. To be in Christ is to be justified. To be in Christ is to be forever forgiven. Yes, God remains just. His holiness has not changed Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. Paul would again explain this beautiful truth in Colossians 2, where he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Exodus 34 makes us long for the coming of Christ because the coming of Christ solves the forgiveness problem. Jesus explains how God can forgive sinners and still be just, still be righteous, still be holy. The celebration of Christmas is the celebration of God's plan for life and forgiveness in Christ. Lastly, please turn to Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. Job stands right after the book of Esther, right before the book of Psalms. As you know, the book of Job is not necessarily an easy read. And that is fitting because Job did not lead an easy life. Job was a wealthy man, but on one day, on just one day, Job lost his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, almost all his servants, and all his sons and daughters dead, gone, just like that on one day. Soon after that, Job would lose his health. God would allow Satan to afflict Job with some kind of painful and terrible and loathsome sores that would just cover his body. The book of Job depicts Job at one point just sitting in the ashes, scraping his wounds, his sores with pieces of broken pottery. Job is left alone with his wife and his wife counsels him. She tells him, curse God and die. Eventually, Job's friends show up. His friends show up. But instead of comforting Job, they add to his misery. They afflict him further by insisting that Job's suffering is somehow due to account to some secret sin in in Job's life that he has kept hidden. And as we make our stop now here in Job chapter 9, we see a particularly precious chapter where Job laments the fact that there doesn't seem to be any mediator, any arbiter between him and God. 
We don't have time to walk through the entire chapter, but we do want to hit some of the highlights. Look at the first three verses of Job chapter 9. It says, Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Job says, it's, it's, it's impossible for me to contend against God. No one is truly right and pure before Him. No one has ever successfully hardened themselves against God and somehow come out on top. If, if, if I had a thousand opportunities to answer God's charges and accusations against me, I couldn't even successfully do it one time. Is, is, is what Job says here. Now, jump down to verse 19. Verse 19. Job says, If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. Job says, God is almighty. How can anyone contend with him? How could anyone successfully summons God to court as if God was obligated to join us in our human courts to appear before our bar of justice and give some kind of account to us? Job says, even if I was convinced that I was pure and blameless, God could prove me wrong. Even my own mouth would end up condemning me if God were to question me, says Job. Job recognizes the difficulty of the situation that he is in. He is perplexed as to what has happened and what is going on with his life. But now look at verse 30. Look at verses 30 to 33. Job says, If I wash myself with snow... And cleanse my hands with lie, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Job says, I I can't clean myself. As hard as I may try, I I deserve to be plunged into the pit whereby my own clothes would find me disgusting. My own clothes would hate to be even associated with me. There There doesn't seem to be a mediator. There doesn't seem to be an arbiter who can put one hand on God, one hand on me, and bring us together. And bring about reconciliation between us. So our our last stop here in the book of Job reminds us, and please note this on your outline, the coming Savior would mediate reconciliation between God and mankind. Job says there is no mediator. There is no arbiter. Is he right? Is there no one who can bring peace between God and man? Is there no one who can successfully serve as the peacemaker? Again, you're way ahead of me. This Christmas, we celebrate the answer to Job's question. Yes, yes, Job, there is a mediator. There is an arbiter. And he can, so to speak, 
lay a hand on God because he is God. And he can lay a hand on sinful man because he became man. Although without sin, he became fully man that he might reconcile us to God. Paul rejoices in this truth when he writes in 1 Timothy 2, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. This is the joy. This is the hope that is found in Christ because he came to be our mediator. Now, friend, I know that this morning I have pushed and pulled you all over the Old Testament. And I appreciate your patience as we have made our different stops. But the point that we've been trying to make is this. Christmas is not about you. Christmas is not about you. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is about God's perfect, eternal, glorious plan to save, redeem, forgive, and reconcile people just like us. Here's why I bring this up. Because this Christmas, you will be tempted to believe the lie that this is all about you. That this season, that this time of year is all about you. All about your comfort and, and your immediate happiness. You'll, you'll be tempted to entertain questions like this. What? What gifts do I want to receive this year? What gifts do I want to give this year? What, what Christmas movies do, do I want to watch? What Christmas cookies do I want to eat? What Christmas parties do I wish to attend? Which Christmas cards do I want to send and receive from my friends? And slowly and subtly we begin to believe the lie that Christmas is really all about us. Our immediate comfort and pleasure But it is not so. Christmas is so much more beautiful and wonderful than that. Christmas is about the coming champion predicted in Genesis 3 who would crush and destroy the enemy. Christmas is about the righteous branch predicted in Jeremiah 23 who would be our righteousness. Christmas is about the one who came to take our sin, to take upon himself the wrath that we deserve so that we may be forgiven. Christmas is about the one that Job longed for, someone to be a mediator and an arbiter to bring about reconciliation between God and man. And brothers and sisters, this Christmas season, it should be our joy and our greatest privilege To see others come to see and recognize and know this precious truth. We have the unique privilege to, through our words, our actions, our love, our sacrifice, to draw the focus, to draw the attention to where it belongs. To Jesus and his saving work. He came to save. 
Let's pray. Gracious Father, as, as we close now, Lord, we pray that you would bring to our minds, that you would bring to our remembrance, those that you would want us to love and serve this Christmas season. Father, protect us from believing the lie that this is all about us. Give us the boldness, the courage to speak words of truth and grace that we may love sacrificially so that others may know Jesus and his saving power. Father, we pray that this Christmas season, everyone around us would see Christ in us. Help us to celebrate, to rejoice in you this Christmas season. And we pray this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen.